Chapter Nineteen of The Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Nineteen. There is nothing to compare with receiving a letter. Every Sunday, men flocked to the post office and hung about there as long as possible. They crowded round the counter, expecting news from a home that lay far up beside the Arctic Ocean or somewhere in Finnmark or out on an island, or up a fjord, or down south, farther and farther off, an incredible number of miles. In all these places there were homes where a mother, a wife, or a daughter would be writing a letter that was coming to Lofoten. And then, when the little white rectangle had found its way to the right person, and lay in his big swollen hand, it looked quite helpless. He had better get away somewhere by himself, and try to find out what it said. Lars had gone to the post office every Sunday, and there were always letters for the other men in the hut, but never for him. From whom did he expect one, then? From no one, and from everyone. All sorts of things happen all over the world, and does not everything come by post? Perhaps a rich American has died and proves to be an uncle of Lars, and here comes a million. A prince down in India is in need of a clerk, and has heard of a man who is made for the post, and here comes the letter to Losh. If good fortune ever comes, it will be by post. Losh Christoffersen Miran, called the man at the counter, and Losh was not slow to shout, Here! A letter for him! And the writing was so small and helpless. He turned red because people were staring at him so hard. It would be better to get away somewhere by himself, so he took the road across the island, north of the church. There is nothing to compare with receiving a letter. Was it not strange that just today the sun should be shining again, after a long period of gloom? A coppery glow illuminated sea and mountain. Lars at last found a nook in which he could be alone, with only the gulls sailing overhead and the sea at his feet. My dear friend, I will now take my pen in my hand and make it open its black mouth and write to you. I must first of all tell you the good news that I am quite strong and well, which I hope this finds you the same. I have no news to tell you except that Grandmother has had a bad gathering on her finger this winter, and that Stublarsh has gone home believing in his Saviour at the age of eighty. There is much talk at school about Susanna Running, who goes to dances already, though she is not confirmed, and they are always teasing me about some one that I will not mention. But I hope that the slander will soon die down. I am sitting up in the cow-stable to-night and writing on the lid of the water-barrel, because Kranslin cast her calf yesterday, and the afterbirth has not come yet, so one of us has to sit up with her to-night. There is often good tobogganing up in the glen, but I never go, for Lisbeth Bruvol has been spreading such tales about that evening you and I were there. I have heard, however, that you have long ago written to others, and that is only what I expected. Dear Lash, you must be very careful, for we hear so much about storms and disasters on the sea, and drinking and fighting on land. I am working on a pair of garters for a Christmas present next year, for by that time I shall be confirmed, and can give them to whoever I like but I've already decided who is to have them, only I shan't say who he is. For now good-bye, 
for I must end this badly written letter. My hand aches, my pen shakes, and this the letter is crooked makes. With my best greetings, Ellen Ull's daughter, Koya. P.S. Burn this letter. Please write me a letter back. Here sat Lars in his southwestern blouse, reading his first letter from a girl, and that is no trifle. When he had finished he sat looking out over the sea, and forgot to get up for a long time. He, who had gone out with Cornelis to visit girls who were perhaps for sale among three or four thousand men, who had been drunk and gone about flourishing his knife, and had bruises and scratches on his face from fighting, that he should get such a letter, it was inconceivable. He could see now, at any rate, that he would have to turn his back upon this sinful life, and become a different being. He painted himself in very black colours, calling himself a drunkard and an evil liver, and later on he found that he was also a false wearer and a murderer. He saw salvation, however, in a young woman whose image in his mind begins once more to grow brighter and brighter. He pictured her far more beautiful than she was, for that gave him a feeling of greater sanctity. That night he stole out of his bunk while the others slept, and sewed the letter to the inside of his waistcoat, so that it should always be with him like a good spirit. It became a remarkable time for him. He heard organ tones rolling through him. If a good thought came into his mind, it flew at once to her. If he had a moment's longing for home and his mother and the others, it was like a little light over Ellen Koya too. Tread softly for there is a church-like solemnity everywhere. One day he happened to see that Peter Shusansa had holes in his socks, and he made him take them off so that he could mend them for him. There was nothing he disliked doing more, but he wanted to show himself that he had become a different being, and while he plied his needle he thought to himself that in a way he was doing it for her. One evening he rode over to the fisherman's home, where the priest lent books. Lars would now have to begin to read in earnest. It was all very well for him to be a Lofoten fisherman all his life like his father, but it was not good enough for Ellen Koya. He began to feel a vague yearning toward an indistinct light. There was a world with greater thoughts, more beautiful scenery, and wiser men in it than here where he worked, and that world was to be found in books. The library at the fisherman's home was filled with weather-beaten men, who held out their hands long before their turn came. What did these storm-birds want with books? Did they want to escape from the perpetual thinking about fish and money by throwing themselves into an intoxication brighter than that which brandy causes? "'What do you want, my boy?' asked the priest when Lash came forward. "'Please, sir, a book,' said Lash. Yes, but there are many books here, as you see. Do you want a story, or a devotional book, or history, or travels? Will you please give me what you think best, sir? said Lash. Only don't lend him Shakespeare, sir, for it ought to be my turn to have him now, said a young fellow in Nordland dialect. I think you'd better begin with Björnson's peasant tales, said the priest with a smile, looking at Lash through his spectacles. And when you've read them, we can have a chat. As Lash left the room he heard the priest say, 
do tell your comrades my friends that it costs nothing to borrow books bring them here good reading is better than drink tell them and more amusing too there came two or three days in which the fleet remained in harbour and Lars spent them in devouring the stories a book of this kind looks rather forlorn in a fisherman's hut it becomes covered with finger-marks but what does that matter the edges are frayed and the cover is broken but what does that matter it is like a rare bird of passage that has strayed into the polar regions and the fishermen think it almost a pity but well well be careful with it it's not always so clean and tidy here as it should be christopher was sitting with his back against the wall busily mending nets the boy might have helped him but he just sat over his book and could as well have been miles away so christopher said nothing but went on with his work you must read aloud lad said peter shusansa looking up from his net mending Lars did not need to be asked twice he was glad to let others share in all the wonderful things that are to be found in such a book he turned again to the beginning of a happy boy but soon regretted having done so for this story of a poor boy who wants to raise himself in order to reach a young woman seemed very like his own he felt as if he were shouting out to a crowd all that he was thinking to himself nowadays he turned crimson and read as if he would rather not let anyone know what the book said the room became quiet the men who were mending nets worked more slowly those who were shaping things out of rough material with a hatchet let their hands fall those who were patching shoes raised their heads and forgot to look down again outside the wind and the waves were roaring this was something they understood it was their own life put into a book it was almost like getting a letter from home the only thing was that it had never struck them before that a house and land can be so beautiful despite their being small they did not know that poor people could have so much sunshine but it was evident that they could this book raised them in their own eyes without their necessarily hating anyone else on that account they listened breathlessly to every word now and again someone said hm which meant did you ever hear anything like that they slapped their thighs and laughed elisus hilla could not contain himself but exclaimed upon my word henry robin sat with closed eyes stroking his beard and nodding now and then he saw it all distinctly arndt olsen once more made an unfortunate remark though with a little hesitation in his voice when he said but isn't that blasphemy the others stared and turned toward him angrily and cornelis exclaimed if you don't hold your jaw aren't i'll pitch you out into the snow hush let's go on reading said peter shusansa there they sat on these rocky islands far out at sea with storm and darkness and cold around them while the book unrolled before their eyes pictures of bright summer days of meadows and woods of beautiful women of farms and of herds with bells to look at them was rest to these men who saw nothing now but sea and rock and it awakened in them a longing for the land but when they came to the part where Eivind and Marit are standing at the altar as bridegroom and bride, and the old schoolmaster sings with his cracked voice, 
Eleazar's hilla was obliged to wipe his eyes with his sleeve, although the expression of his face was one of anger. Confound a book that can fool grown men into behaving like women! A little later, Andrea Zekra came in with a new number of the Dawn. There was another capital article in it that he wanted Lars to read aloud, but this time he was not even asked to sit down. It looked as if he had surprised them with something they wanted to keep to themselves. Oh, very well, he could go then. And take the paper with you, said Cornelis. Andreas looked highly astonished, and putting the dawn into his pocket, left the hut. The men looked at one another a little doubtfully, until Henry Robin said, Well, it's strange, but that book makes us perhaps better than we are, and that paper makes us worse than we are but in other ways, too, we often become like those we keep company with. From that day there was frequently reading aloud, and even Jacob, when he came sailing in, sat down in a corner with his head on one side, quite still, and listened. One day Lars was cleaning an enormous cod that was going to be boiled for their dinner, when he felt something strangely hard in its inside. Curious as to what it could be, he opened the fish and could hardly believe his eyes when he found that it was a human finger with a ring upon it. The fishermen were still weather-bound, and he ran into the room where the men were sitting and showed them what he had found. The finger was passed from one to another, but when one of the men began to try to take the ring off to see if there was any name engraved in it, Peter Sonsa interposed. No, no! he said, let it alone, you idiot. As the ring is still there, I suppose it's meant that it shall be there. An uncanny feeling filled the hut. The men looked at one another, but were silent for some time. It was as if they had had a visitor, whom they did not like to name. Peter Susanza took the finger and went with it to the priest. After a while Cornelis spoke. That must mean something, he said. Must it? said Aunt Osan. "'You'll see there is more where that finger came from,' said Cornelis. The next morning there was sea-going weather again, but Christopher had had an attack of rheumatism in his back during the night, and could scarcely manage to get into his clothes. There could hardly fail to be some evil consequences for standing all day in the wind and cold out at sea, after being in a perspiration from rowing, and then sleeping in a hut with cracks in all the walls. He had pulled on his sea-boots, but when he tried to rise from his stooping posture he gave a howl and put both hands on his back, quite unable to stand erect. He seized the edge of the table as a support, and his face was as contorted as if someone had put a knife into him. "'You'll have to go to bed again,' said Henry Rabban. "'We must manage without you.' They set off. But just as they were putting out from the shore, Christopher emerged from the hut, more bent than ever, and called to them to wait, and then, going down on his hands and knees in the snow, he crawled down the rock. "'But, father,' cried Lars, "'can't you stay in bed to-day?' "'Wait. I'm coming with you.' "'And it is best to obey the headman.' He crawled on board, making grimaces all the time, for every movement gave intolerable pain. But when the others put out the oars, he wanted to take one himself, and persisted, although he groaned at every stroke. When they reached the bank and began hauling in the nets, 
he made henry robin take the headman's place with a gaff but he himself helped to haul in the others exchanged glances had the rheumatism attacked his brain they began to haul in it is hard enough work for a man in full vigour but almost impossible for one with rheumatism in his back every time christopher took a fresh grasp and twisted his body as he worked with the heavy chain of nets the perspiration broke out all over him with the agony there were not many fish but their nets had become entangled with others and so it took a long time to get them all in they hauled hour after hour and became silent for it was hard to see the headman suffering toward evening however his face began to grow brighter that's just what i thought he said the only thing for such pain is to work till you sweat his back was less stiff and painful but all he could do was to go on hauling the grey stream of net ran in over the roller but the grey cod were few and far between the weather was clear and cold and there was the same swarm of boats all over the banks Lars sat at the oars looking down into the water and watching the nets coming up from the depths some large bubbles rose this must be a big fish he thought a grampus perhaps henry robin saw it too and got his gaff ready the next moment the net took the form of a long mass which rose out of the water and came in over the roller the men looked astonished and henry forgot to use his gaff when the mass lay in the bottom of the boat the men stopped hauling and looked in dismay at one another the object wrapped up in the net was something with sea-boots on i believe it's a man said christopher wiping his forehead good heavens exclaimed henry cornelis sprang up into the bow to get a better view a chain of nets cannot be stopped however in the middle of the sea the men would have to wait until all the nets were on board before they could examine the object in sea-boots so the grey stream continued to rise from the depths now and then with a fish that leaped as it passed over the edge of the boat the men went on pulling as before apparently thinking of nothing else and the pile of nets grew higher and higher over the formless mass in the boat they lay there together the fish with their dead eyes and the unknown with sea-boots and they would both have to wait there until there was time to take them out of the net a suspicion seemed to have crept in among the boats about them that there was something wrong on board the seal her men were toiling at the nets without speaking and yet something must have happened the occupants of the nearest boats began to gaze at her while farther off some sang others called to a neighbour and laughed but the circle of boats all gazing at the seal became larger and larger a heavy cloud of gulls was also hovering overhead looking down and screaming what was it now they appeared to have got all the nets on board and to be busy with the fish but even the men who were at the oars went aft to look they were working at the formless mass wrapped up in the net they could not all get near it but christopher and cornelis had it between them some fingers became visible so entangled in the meshes that the net had to be cut to free them and then a man in yellow oilskins and long sea-boots was distinguishable they all gazed in silence until christopher murmured he's got a black beard cornelis added as if in surprise 
but all his fingers are there what's that you've got on board there cried a voice from a nordland boat it had been a day of sunshine and now in the twilight a bank of red clouds lay upon the southwestern horizon while yellow stars began to appear in the brownish-blue sky the sea was perfectly calm except for a tiny wave here and there that rose with a flash and sank again the beacons and harbour lights at the foot of the white-crested lofoten wall were being lighted and through this twilight a wave of emotion passed from boat to boat a dead man had been found in one of the nets a stad's boat had pulled up a dead man the singing ceased and the laughter died away and there was no more shouting from boat to boat those who had quarrelled over tangled nets made peace a church-like silence fell upon the sea and enveloped the men and the boats and almost the only sounds were from the flock of white seabirds above the boat in which the dead fisherman lay and as they flew their white wings now and then caught a bright gleam from the sunset sky not a boat came nearer someone had called do you know him but christaver did not answer he was busy with something in the bottom of the boat it grew dark as the fleet rowed in to land it was as though all these hundreds of boats were taking part in a funeral procession and little was said on board of them the high masts and curving prows moved on over a phosphorescent sea leaving a fiery trail behind them but each boat seemed to have a dead man on board the dead man was laid upon two empty barrels down on the wharf and it was not until the next day that they found out that he was a fisherman from Gimsoy who had capsized the year before and been drowned. End of chapter 19